Hello and welcome back to the spreadsheet test brought to you by Looks Good on Paper. As ever, I'm your host, Felix Pate. Uh, I'm joined by another guest today. Um, I've always been interested in analytics across a wide range of sports and how I can translate those ideas to football. So I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by someone in the, the sphere of cricket analytics, Dan Weston. Dan, thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Felix. Looking forward to doing this. Yeah, it's going to be brilliant. Um, so, Dan, you are a, a cricket data analyst. You work for uh, Leicestershire County Cricket Club and uh, Birmingham Phoenix in the 100. Do you just want to go into a little bit about what you do and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've had a really quite interesting background. So, originally, um, I've always been interested in numbers from a young age. I mean, I can remember like when I was about eight or nine years old, kind of, looking at averages non-stop throughout weekends and stuff in, you know, supplements of weekend newspapers and things like that, taking them on holiday, simulating matches and stuff. And always been really maths and sport orientated. So kind of managed to turn what was just a hobby from a young age into, into something of a career, which is, you know, I'm really fortunate to do that, to be able to do something that I love every day is just incredible. Um, so from, from a career basis, I've I done a degree in accounting and finance. So again, numbers. Um, I worked in the gambling industry for quite a long period of time, um, mainly off my own back in terms of like so stuff like online poker, playing online poker full time, um, things like that. And there's a lot of parallels actually between online poker and, and data analytics as it happens. So I think, I think we're going to talk about... Um, sort of the state of analytics in in cricket in in you know in the future of this podcast but you can compare this to poker quite well because in 2003 poker was still kind of quite small online poker in particular and then chris moneymaker won the world series of poker when he uh played an online satellite to get into the main event so he turned like a cheap online entry won that tournament to get a seat in the ten thousand dollar buy-in main event of world series of poker and then won the World Series of Poker for like millions of dollars. And he showed that that was possible. And obviously his name was like, as a moneymaker, as his surname was just like, you couldn't write a better headline than that mm-hmm. kind of thing in terms of advertising the sport. Well, sport, but you know you know what I mean. And um, uh, it just exploded. And from, I mean, I, st- I can't remember when I started, but it would have been not far off then. And at the, at the start, players were just horrible they were really bad you, they used to get lucky against you sometimes but they had no chance of beating you in the long run mm-hmm. um the long run you might say would be about thirty thousand hands at a given stake before you could work out if you're profitable at that level for example and 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 there's so many parallels like i said because now poker is full of shocks game theory experts things like that the, the market got completely saturated in mm-hmm. here the bad players kind of disappeared. Now, if you're playing like a six max table, there might be five competent or very competent players, even at low stakes, five competent players and one bad player. And every competent player is fully aware of the fact that who the one bad player is and they're, they're trying to exploit them. They've all got software on their computer, heads up displays and stuff like that. So so they're, they're fully aware of who their primary target is. And, and the, the bad players don't exist anymore. And I think that there's a lot of parallels with, with cricket because cricket doesn't at the moment it's probably before where Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker all those years ago almost 20 years ago and football's probably maybe 
2010-ish, maybe, if you like, whereas cricket's like 2002-ish in terms of the poker cycle. And probably both both areas are still yet to reach kind of maximum efficiency and saturation. And I was mentioned about the sort of sample size of hands as well. Well, that's super useful in terms of um, cricket data samples as well, because it taught me that you can't deal with small sample sizes, which a lot of analysts do do. And I feel that that's a point of difference for me because I, I don't trust those small, numbers, small sample sizes. I try and cross-reference those smaller sample sizes with like bigger population tendencies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and other people don't do that. And I feel that that really helps me with matchups, which I think we can talk about a bit later on as well. Mm-hmm. And finally, the other area that I think that there's a lot of similarities with poker and, and cricket in any strategy in sport really is that the meta game what they call the meta game so not necessarily taking like a standard line against someone that you play on a regular basis and deviating from perhaps perfect strategy or abc strategy if you like and then going doing something different because you're trying to create an edge in the future and and again there's there's strategies that you can doing that in cricket as well a lot of parallels so poker was a really good background for me to get into sports analytics and probably about I guess about five years ago I started building cricket databases because as I said earlier I've always been a massive fan of cricket watch it on tv all the time and I kind of realized that commentators don't really have a clue what they're talking about and teams are making bad decisions and stuff like that so I thought all right I'll build a database and then that kind of piqued my interest even more and kind of realized this there was a situation developed where commentator would be saying something on tv and i'd be like no that's actually complete opposite of of what the data is saying mm-hmm. so then i thought okay well maybe i can help these commentators i can help teams to to make better decisions and so i set up a set up a kind of business doing that right did a lot of um free articles online tried to build a bit of a social media presence and it was a really difficult process so I didn't realize how difficult it would be and to be brutally honest with you if I did know in advance how difficult it would be I probably wouldn't have bothered I would have been better off putting my time to a different industry um uh but now I'm there it's it's kind of a bit more rewarding but the 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 legwork that I've had to put into getting roles and stuff has been incredible um I I can remember the days where I was sending like 100 plus messages to different various decision makers captains players coaches directors of cricket you name it and 95 percent of them we wouldn't even give you the courtesy of reply so so and then the rest of them would be like no that's all right thanks and and so it was it was really really difficult process and then i kind of ended up doing a little bit of consultancy work for a couple of teams but the rates weren't great in terms of day rates they're, they're fine but obviously if you're only doing a day rate a few days a year or something like that it's 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 not going to pay the bills no so so having and then eventually i got the birmingham phoenix role let me try and work that one out it would have been spring of 2019 um but we haven't actually played a match yet no. so, <laughs> um so uh so obviously we did the draft in october 2019 uh, which was fantastic experience, really, really great cool. to watch as well. I must yeah. say, I watched the whole thing on TV, and it was really good to see that in an English sport for the first time. Exactly that, this first cricket draft in the UK, which is just awesome. And, and 
obviously we're really looking forward to playing the tournament and then COVID hit. So the tournament got delayed. So we've actually done two drafts. We haven't played a match yet. So we did the, the mini draft the end of last year. Uh, no, sorry, February, was it February this year? Sorry. And um, just, we, we only needed three players. We, we released three and we picked, picked three new players up. Um, so we had quite limited activity in that few teams. I think Manchester had needed like 10 players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of dominated that mini draft. Um, but yeah, that was that was great as well. We did all that on Zoom, though, so there wasn't any glitzy Sky Sports studios or anything like that. Um, so and then the tournament starts in sort of third week of July, I think. So yeah, can't wait for that. And that was that 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 was kind of my first introduction to working a lot more closely with a team. And then July last year, uh, I got the role at Leicester, which was uh, I've, I've been speaking to Paul Nixon for for a while. He's head coach at Leicester. Uh, he he was really interested in in the side of things that I could bring and um, you know we chatted informally for quite a long time uh, kind of became mates through whatsapp or whatever and um then they got a new CEO Sean Jarvis who was originally uh, last at Huddersfield FC uh, as commercial manager I think so um he he came in as CEO at Leicester and I had a meeting with them and 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 they wanted to be forward with a more of a sort of analytics driven approach which is fantastic and I love working there. So I so started in July last year, hit the ground running straight away pretty much. And um, we've got a big project on our hands because we've got one of the lowest budgets, if not the lowest budget out of the 18 first class counties. Um, if you look at the historical league tables, uh, Leicestershire don't rank very well. We've often come bottom uh, in just like 2017, 2018, 2019. Even before then there was one year, I think it was, might be 2016 and they didn't even win a match for the whole season. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's we're starting from quite a low base. It's probably going to be, yeah. We've got ambitions. We're really ambitious, um, but realistically, it's probably going to be, you know, a fairly long-term project. Uh, certainly to get us up to where I think we could be. Um, but by the same token, as well, it's 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 interesting because we can build something from the bottom and hopefully take us to the top, and. I'm really strong on the fact that there's a lot of market inefficiencies in cricket and it's allowing me to kind of try and exploit those market inefficiencies or to help exploit those market inefficiencies uh, from the bottom and then show that we can do it at the top as well. And, and as a project, I think that's absolutely perfect. And I, and I firmly believe that the, the kind of smaller teams with the lower budgets can actually probably benefit more from analytics than some of the richer teams who can just take their pick of the better players anyway. Whereas a team team like Leicestershire, they have to really make sure that every pound that they spend produces an ROI. So if, 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 if we can pick up a player for half the salary of someone else and that player produces more than that player who's on double their money, then we've had a win. And and that and that's kind of how we have to operate. I think at least in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a, f- a fascinating journey that you've described there. And um, I think it draws a lot of parallels with what we're seeing in the football analytics space. People having to really graft, put out a lot of public work um, for no compensation, blogging, um, put a lot of data visualizations as well on Twitter at the moment, and then slowly but surely people getting part-time roles but it's completely cutthroat people are, are let go quite often it's such a competitive industry to get into i can imagine probably even more so um than cricket yeah and well, yeah like context there as well so 
as far as I know, out of the 18 first-class county teams, I'm the only analyst that works specifically on recruitment. Wow. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the, the biggest thing that it's being used for in football at the moment. And I think there's definitely a lot more areas that it's not being used for enough yet. I think everyone's putting their eggs a little bit too much in the recruitment basket. Um, and it's, it is leading to a little bit of saturation. Um, but hopefully that, that turns around pretty soon. Like you say, I think it definitely has a benefit for the smaller low-budget clubs. Um, it's the classic money ball, David and Goliath yeah. story. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Yorkshire fan. So I've, I've enjoyed a little, a little bit of success because I've never enjoyed success with my football team. But I've, I've seen us win county championships. I've also seen us waste money and waste resources mm-hmm. in the T20 blast over a number of years, you know, going regularly, but seeing little end product of it. And you see teams like Leicestershire and North Hants on far, far smaller budgets than Yorkshire operating on winning finals days. And you're wondering where are the inefficiencies coming from that Yorkshire, with all those resources, as one of the historically biggest counties, um, aren't exploiting. Just to go back on something you mentioned um, when you first started going into this, you said you started collating your own databases. Um, mm-hmm. I put a poll out on Twitter yesterday asking the football analytics uh, sphere uh, how many of them collect their own data or do they just rely on third-party vendors do they do a mixture of both i'm i've always been someone who's tried to collect really basic data but then feed it into my own models and algorithms to try and get unique insights out of it that no one else is able to get how important do you feel that collecting your own data is rather than relying on those third-party vendors when sometimes you know the definitions and the accuracy aren't always the clearest yeah i think it's super important for what i want to do what i what i want to achieve i couldn't achieve what I wanted to do without my basic database, which has got performances of every player in T20 over a long period of time. It's split by a year, split by tournaments, stuff like that. I couldn't, and you can't get that information on any commercial website. You can't pay for it. You can't get it for free. So, and I can like, for example, like Nico, Paul Nixon, our coach, he'll, 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 you know, he's always texting me saying, oh, what do you think about this player? What do you think about that player? This guy might be available, whatever. And I can just flip that database up on my computer and give him bullet points straight away of, of positives, negatives, stuff like that. And it allows us not just to recruit well, but to avoid bad recruitment as well, which I think is actually probably half the battle a lot of the time. Um, certainly with cricket teams, I think being quite blunt, they, 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 there is a lot of bad recruitment in cricket teams. And, and even if you can just avoid bad recruitment, then, then that's, that's a big win over most of the opposition. So yeah, having that, my own database that I can just flick up and, and, and refer to whenever necessary, I'll, you know, I'll sit in and I'll sit in a, and you know, have it. I have it to hand in like a draft room or something like that. That I can just, I can just flip to if, if the draft goes a certain way. We can then look at that and say, okay, well, what about this? What about that? This player, what's his numbers? Just put it up straight away. Yeah. And that's is perfect for what I want. There's stuff that I, I'll use in terms of like this freely available stuff as well. But it's just to cross reference or to find a different side of another angle to things. But I couldn't do what I do without my own database. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think 
probably the same in cricket and in football. There's a lot of numbers without context and everyone's got access to uh, a lot of basic data, certainly on kind of the biggest teams now. And it's what are you actually doing with those numbers? Can you add those extra layers that add the context? Who you know, Can you adjust for how strong the opposition were, how strong your yeah. own team are? Um, I, I mean, the thing that I've always hoped differentiates um, my data set from a lot out there is I want to develop something that can look at historical priors so you can see young up-and-coming players coming through and you can compare them to players of the past and see what kind of trajectories they might be on and that mm-hmm. hopefully aids a lot in uh, decision-making. And, and like you say, there's there's only really scraping the surface with the, the data that's out there and by collecting your own and adding that context, you really are adding a whole lot more detail and hopefully adding a lot more value to decision makers within clubs. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting you mentioned about those kind of historical benchmarks of, of players in the past as well, because that's something that I've done a lot of work towards as well. So um, for example, without going into massive detail, I'll, I'll know if a player hits certain benchmarks by the age of 22 in 2020, that's generally means that they'll play a good level of international cricket yeah. in the future. So I can I can then profile the the high potential players for the future. But the difficulty with cricket compared to football is there's no transfer fees. No, which is a massive problem because I think uh, for me I would absolutely love transfer fees in cricket because I think that with good recruitment you could just you would be able to turn a low budget team into the best team in the country in a couple yeah. of years, basically, because team other teams would make so many mistakes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's the one, that's the one drawback. So I, I've got this list of high potential players, but a lot of the time I can't necessarily act on it because yeah. we're only allowed two overseas players per tournament. So there's, there's not quite that freedom of movement and freedom of selection that you have in football. And, and also like say no transfer fees. So I can't look to try and identify a hidden gem in the reserve somewhere, which which there are some of, uh, and I'm sure. and, and get them for for free or dirt cheap, and then sell them for millions of pounds in a year's time because that model model doesn't work like that in cricket. So the, the, there's there's problems with it as well. But yeah, identifying certainly domestic players with high potential is massive, and 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 a, a big part of what I do. Yeah, and do you think I, I've noticed this problem in football and be interesting to hear your perspective on it in cricket? Do you think there's somewhat of a disconnect sometimes between statistics that you see commonly used versus ones that are actually meaningful? I, I mean, in football, you see loads of stuff about uh, possession numbers, for example, or on number of tackles. And the question I always ask is, well, does that actually mean it? Is that actually going to help contribute towards a team winning more games if your yeah. midfield is running more than? Uh, the other team. Do you see a lot of that in cricket as well? Ridiculous amounts. So, so um, I'll give you some context. So, like, there might be an England test match on the TV, right? And you'll get someone on Twitter, some statistician, who will, will post words to the effect of, that was the sixth fastest hundred in England on a Tuesday or something like that. But the, realistically, what, what benefit does anyone have mm-hmm. from information? It's completely meaningless. So so when I see that, I just like, that's nice. But, but you're more likely to get a job providing stats like that than you are providing analytics with future predictive value. It's, it's a crazy industry. Just, just bite-sized content, I guess, is 
the thing that's driving the social media engagements and it, it is frustrating i agree yeah this uh, so so obviously everything i provide with well, the insight i provide i try and have that predictive value or, or some some form of information that we can act on in the future whereas obviously knowing that someone's got the sixth fastest century in england on a tuesday <laughs> provides no 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 predictive value whatsoever so there's, there's a big difference between all that yeah i, I think that's definitely something that I'm hoping comes to the foreign sports analytics in general is that trend towards less away from the descriptive um, and more towards the predictive and being able to project future outputs from players. Um, so going back to, you mentioned about the parallels between poker uh, and cricket and the state that you think cricket in is compared to poker. How, how much do you think firstly cricket has been able to come on in the last kind of five to 10 years and, how much more do you think it's got to go? Where are the the gaps that still need filling before we're, we're seeing a, a bigger analytics boom in cricket as you were? Okay, so there's a, quite a few kind of sub-questions in those sub-areas that I think are really worth discussing, actually. Yeah. Uh, to, be, to give a real instant summary, I would say, if you're looking at how saturated cricket is with analytics, I would say about two out of 10. Um, I think that the casual fan thinks that it's a lot more data driven than it actually is. But having experienced the industry and, and, and one of the benefits of freelancing at a few other teams in the past was that I kind of know how a bit about how they operate and, and, and their processes and stuff like that. So that, that's been super useful in terms of informing my current roles. And I don't think it's remotely close to maximum efficiency or, or, or anywhere near that. Most teams won't, like I said, won't use recruitment in their, in their so analytics in their recruitment in, yeah. in as a UK county. You will, every team in a draft will say that they do it, but I'm not convinced that the recruitment analyst, if they have one, will have a massive impact in their decision making. I would say, I'd be surprised if more than about 10% of teams really listen to their recruitment analyst in terms of did the vast majority of the things that he's recommending. Do you think uh, it's a little bit of a FOMO, fear of missing out? I think it's just, no, I think that there's, and I guess maybe there's a similar situation in football, is that I think that there's too much reliance given to the opinions of people who have played the game. Uh, okay. Like the 50 caps for your country merchants, because they played for years and they were really high profile and they're successful as a player. So uh, they must know what they're talking about, right? Mm. Um, when actually they they don't really have a clue what they're talking about because, for example, you look at most coaches or, or ex-players who are in the media, most of them either didn't play T20 cricket or they played it right at the start when uh, the early years. And then the first match of T20 cricket, I think it was in like 2003, yeah. was the, the play defence dress which tells you like how seriously it was taken at that time. Well, wasn't, wasn't there the story of um, they went to the toss and I, whoever won the, I think it was Surrey won the toss and Adam Hollyoak said, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. So we're just going to bat. <laughs> well, I think that there was, like I said, there was a match playing fans dress between New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. New Zealand had like wigs on and stuff like that. Um, and now it's like the most commercially successful format, less than 20, yeah. later, which kind of tells you about how it's developed. And, if it's developed like that and these players only played at the start, how can they possibly give you insight over someone who's 
sits in, even sits in a home office like myself all day long, looking mm-hmm. at data, historical trends, drivers of success, recruitment information, stuff like that. They can't. No. And, and obviously, as you, as you know, the benefit of, of data and analytics is that you can cover multiple matches all at the same time. Whereas if you're watching a match live or on TV, you can only cover one match at the same time. And in not, a lot of the time in cricket, there's multiple matches played at the same time. So you've got no chance to cast as many eyes on it as you possibly can, yeah. whereas you can, you can use data and video and stuff like that. So I so say these ex-players, they, they hold too much weight. They, um, there's still a big reliance on overpaid declining legends in terms of the, the in squads. So if you look at a couple of teams in the IPL, I've just been doing some IPL previews for another podcast, a cricket podcast. So if anyone's interested in the IPL in advance, definitely give those a lesson as well, a I'll listen put, as well. I'll put a link down below. Perfect. Yeah, the first one's being released on Wednesday, the 31st of March, and they're being released daily. So yeah, if you're interested, give those a listen. So what I'm saying says Chennai Super Kings and, and Kolkata Knight Riders, they have a very aging squad with a, a lot of big play, big name players aged sort of 34 plus. Even CSK have got one player, Imran Tahir, is 42. They have been around um, forever. Yeah, MS Dhoni, like I think he's about 39, roughly. Uh, and CSK have, I mean, if, if you're 32, you're, you're a youngster, you're a break, breakthrough player for them. <laughs> it, it, and, and these players are paid, paid huge money despite like declining data. And, but because they're like legends of Indian cricket, they still they, they they can't bring themselves to get rid of these players. No. And then I see like today, for example, Sergio Aguero has been released by by Man City. And I tweeted this morning and I said football teams can grasp the economics of player decline a lot better than cricket teams can right now. Yeah. And and cricket teams, there is a bit of FOMO, I think, that they don't want to release a legend and then he plays well for someone else. But what's the bigger risk? The bigger risk shortly is releasing uh, you know, keeping a player on, paying him fortunes, a massive chunk of your budget, and then flops. They're basically rubbish, yeah, yeah. which happens so many times. So there's a lot of things that cricket needs to learn from football, I think, at the moment, in terms of how they deal with things from like that age decline and economic basis as well. Okay, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, you touched on, you know, obviously the the squad profile and that that fear of letting people go. I think, I think that's only just started to change a little bit in football. Um, I do think that has been a, a massive problem in that as well. Um, I've seen, I'm an Everton fan, uh, regular listeners will know, and we've signed huge contracts to players age 28, 29, 30 yeah. over the last few seasons and just really throw money up against the wall in the hope that they'll produce what they did when they were 23, 24, 25 at the same level now having moved to a different league, uh, playing in a different system. And it, it just doesn't scream long-term thinking, yeah. um, which is a, a real shame, actually. Um, so I guess moving on from that quite nicely, um, we were going to talk about a couple of specific things you like to talk about in, in cricket and how they might apply to football. So I, I guess ageing curves would make the most sense to uh, to start with. And, and you were saying to me before, you don't see a lot of work and on ageing curves in cricket but how, just how crucial do you think they are? Yeah, I think that it's huge because, one, as far as I know, I don't know anyone else who's done any work on it. So if you can 
do work on it and you can do it well, then that's just a ridiculous advantage. But also in terms of understanding how good a young player can be and what what looking at benchmarks for certain ages like we spoke about earlier is is really useful because you know you might get a 19 year old who's averaging 25 in division two okay now if you're that 25 in division two is a batting average is not good it's not it's not disaster but it's not good but if you're 19 and you're averaging 25 over the whole season you played every match that's actually probably pretty good so, but but so there's, it enables you to make context of of before player performance levels. So you know, young players in cricket are very treat, treated very much differently to football teams. So football teams, because you've got transfer fees, they're treated as an asset. They try and sign them up on long term contracts to maximise resale value. But in cricket, it's the opposite. These players are like an afterthought. They're frequently offered like one-year deals at the end of a season and stuff like that. So then just roll it, roll it over for the next year. And then just they'll just delay making a decision on their development and their pathway and, and how they're going to fit into the squad and stuff like that. And and understanding that a player with a below average performance output at a young age will, will then be able to transform that into an above average output at a higher level when their peak age is yeah. massive and and enables you to to pick up and exploit mistakes on on a lot of young players at other teams and yeah i've got i've got like metrics which will tell me that if if a player hits a certain level by a certain age they're like 80 percent likely to play for england stuff like that because of his, the way the historical trends have gone yeah and and we've already I don't really want to talk about it in that much depth but we've already picked up one player who's done that so so that particular player very very few people had under uh, outperformed him at his age uh in that in a particular format in the last five or six years and out of all those players who outperformed him they've all either played for England or England Lions, which is like England A team. So like the fringing, they'll be fringing England players. So the, when when his his team are not that interested in keeping him, and we can then come in and get a player like that, that's just huge. Yeah. Because because and that just goes to show you how teams undervalue players in cricket and undervalue young players. A lot of teams don't have a clear pathway for young player development. So, classic case is a right arm off spinner in cricket, right? So, I guess there's probably parallels with with certain positions in in football as well, where there's a sort of ridiculous oversupply and under demand for certain positions, but then yeah. there's other positions where it's the opposite. Um, like a right arm off spinner in cricket, right? I can, if I want a right arm off spinner, I can go to a release list and pick up one like that because there's so many, there's an oversupply of them. But the problem is you don't really want a right arm off spinner because most of the time, because a right arm off spinner only really matches up well against left-handed batsmen because of the angle of turn, right? So the problem is, is that over 70% of batters are right-handed. Yep. So you, you only really, there's not really that much need for a right arm off spinner unless the opposition have got like a really left-hander heavy, like say like four left-handers or three left-handers in the top six or seven. Um, and so if you look at the players who are currently at counties in England who are right arm off spinners, 
you'll find that the vast majority of them are either elite level, like Simon Harmer. They either bat really well, like Moe Nally or Joe Root. They either, or they're, above, they're an above average batter for a bowler, like Dominic Best, which Dominic is his yeah. pathway into the England team to some extent. Um, or they've got like massive potential, like Amar Verdi uh, at Surrey is, is, is one example of that. So, so apart from that, there's no pathway for these players to develop. So you've either got to be elite or a good batter, basically, to, to be right on off spin and get a long-term county success. But what teams do is that they, they pick up these players in their academy, they spend money on developing them, they put them on rookie contracts when they're like 18. Then they'll string them along for a year, year after year after year until they're about 22. Realise that they don't actually need a right off spin and release them. And they spend about 100 grand plus on, on, on their development for no, no ROI. Uh, and it's just completely pointless. And like I said, if, if I want to pick up a 22-year-old right off spinner now, I could go and do it immediately. But if you asked me to provide a 22-year-old leg spinner, I couldn't do it. Gold dust, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I I can relate to that. I I was a well, I still am an off an off spinner, and um, I used to play district level, so the level kind of just below um county Colts, and I, I got dropped from the district team because they didn't want a spinner who couldn't bat. Like my batting is yeah. not great compared to my bowling, and we were playing on on green tracks, and they just wanted to pick four seamers instead, and because I couldn't bat, I I literally just couldn't hold a place in the team, and I was still picking up wickets um for my local team, but they just didn't want an off spinner in the district team. So yeah, I think that's really the perfect analogy there. Definitely, and and you see, you see you see it all the time. It just there's no there's just not a place for a, a bowler like that, in, in particularly in T Twenty as well, because the, a lot of the time a right arm off spinner's economy against a right hand batsman is horrible. Or they don't take wickets, mm-hmm. and, and they just get dominated really, really easily. And you look at IPL; every team has got a leg spinner who's pretty much, apart from Kings Eleven, I think, they have a, a leg spinner who's an elite level leg spinner, and sometimes two, but most of them probably won't even pick an off spinner in there in the starting eleven. Yeah, and I think there was the thing kind of with England. Um... Going back to the mid 2010s, a desperate search to find anyone who could bowl a bit of legs. Been with people like Scott Both. We can even picking Joe Denley on the basis that he bowled some some legs. Been it was that desperate for a search to find those yeah. players. I can't off the top of my head think of any or many examples in football. I think the the only current trend that I think that matches up to it is there's a massive trend in football at the moment for for left footed um, centre halves. Okay. Um, yeah. And there's just this big rush that if you're playing a back two or a back three, regardless, people want left-footed centre-backs and they'll pigeonhole um, sometimes defensive midfielders to play there just because they think it it creates this um, advantage with the passing angles. But actually, if you look at it, there's not such a huge tangible difference that people should be rushing out and trying to buy every young left-footed centre-back there is. So I, I think... Yeah, it's that fine line between wanting, obviously, something that works, but not just rushing out and buying it just because it's the, the done thing. Then that happens in, in cricket auctions in particular as well. So it's a very similar scenario to the left-footed left, left uh, footed centre-backs. A left-arm paces in the IPL auction are ridiculously overpriced because 
and you, as you say, the stats don't necessarily bear out the fact that they should be overpriced. I, I've done research and all this, and actually, there's t- teams without a left arm pacer have actually performed pretty well. Um, there's uh, the, the a lot of teams. What's happened is that they, they pick a left arm pacer because they've overpaid by so much, and they've got a fixed budget. Every team's got the same budget. It's quite different to football, where every team in in the IPL, every team's got a level budget of eighty yeah. quarters. So. Um, 80 cores is about £8 million for a salary for a six-week tournament, for example, squad salary. And um, if, you, if you're paying like 12 crore, which is essentially about 15% of your budget for a left-arm pacer who's an average bowler, but because he's left-arm, you're paying that left-arm premium that people often refer to, you're then sort of hamstringing yourself in other areas of your squad because you can't compete financially to get the best players yeah. and other skill sets. And, and, and you see it all the time that mediocre left-arm paces are picked up for massive money. And I'm not convinced of the rationale behind that. And like you say, sometimes the stats don't bear out the obsession with a certain playing role. Yeah, and And I think this is another area where like ex-players have too much influence in team building a lot of the time because an ex-player will almost always say you've got to pick up you've got to pick a left armor you have to pick a left arm a different angle well there's no good buying a mediocre left armor for a load of money when you can pick a better right armor for half the price yeah so yeah that's a that's a lot of the sort of less successful teams have there's been a history of spending overspending on left arm seamers yeah, and I, I think that just comes back to a trend that I've kind of discussed and had debates with people on in football before is about that fundamental difference between style and talent and where the crossover is and actually how far down that style track just to fit in with how you want to play and how different you want your options to be, how far down that road you want to go before you realise, actually, I've missed out on all these fundamentally more talented players along the way. Just to kind of fit into this mold that I've got my mind set on, I think it's a really, really interesting debate. There's some good articles about it online, and I think it'll become more prevalent. I think the shift will go back towards that. Let's let's make sure we've got the best talent we can mm. before worrying about oh we've got to have everything um, that's on trend. And um, I think then that also leads quite nicely into the next thing we wanted to discuss, which was. Um, matchups um i think it's it's quite a buzzword whenever i watch um t20 cricket on on sky they're always talking about all oh, the matchups are um moeen ali's such a, a good hitter against spin or whatever mm. do you think they are becoming more and more crucial to the fine margins um that, that decide a, a t20 game i do but i don't think a lot of people approach them very well so um to give you an example, like you use the Moe and Ali example there. Um, so obviously that's that's very true. Moe Mo is a great uh, hitter of spin. Um, but there's three different types of conventional spin. Yeah. So slow left arm, right arm off spin, or, or right arm leg spin. There's a, some some left arm leg spinners, but they probably represent less than 5% of the spinner pool. Um, uh, but... So then you can break that up into sub-segments of, of different spin type. And and so when, but when a player is, I mean, you're lucky to get a strike rate against spin or flashing up on your TV when a player comes into bat. 
And I think that that's, that's a big problem. Right? And we talked earlier about the poker sample sizes. And I think that that's, that's a massive thing with matchups as well, because you see even like media companies on, on Twitter and stuff and people who even involve, you know, advise teams. Then they're like, oh, I don't know, just plucking some random names out of the air. Virat Kohli has scored 35 runs in 27 balls against Jasper Bumrah. Well, what predictive value does that have? It's 27 balls. Yeah. That's like nothing, absolutely nothing. True. So that you know, ballpark 130 strike rate off uh, 35 to 27 balls, right? How confident can you be that in the next 27 balls, he's going to strike at 130 strike rate again? You can't be because yeah. the target sample is so tiny. So matchups are crucial. They're really, really useful for a marginal gain or not even a marginal gain, a massive competitive okay. advantage if you do it right. But you've got to do it right. And and understanding the drawbacks of small sample sizes a lot. To put, it, to put this into context, I don't I, I do an absolute ton of work with matchups. And I don't think I ever look at individual batter v bowler matchups. It's always a subset of similar players. Yeah, it's a certain kind of type of yeah. batter or bowler or whatever. Exactly, yeah. So, so I'm not I'm not looking at Kohli versus Jasper Bumrah. I'm I'm looking at Kohli versus bowlers who are similar to Jasper Bumrah, and then we can get a more robust sample size to draw some conclusions, which may have better predictive value. Yeah, I think that's quite important. I mean, sample sizes is, is talked about a lot in football as well now, especially with young players. And like you say, it's in football. It seems to be a thing now where if it's a small sample size, oh, we'll just we'll just chuck them out, we'll ignore them, we won't include them in our analysis. Whereas I think the the trend which you've kind of spoken about there, and something I try to do with um you, you know using the historical prize that we've talked about and a little bit of you know things like regression towards the mean is rather than just focusing on that small sample size, can we use similar players in the past? Um and a wider rather than just that individual a wider group who are similar so we don't have to chuck out that sample size and we can perhaps nudge our confidence a little bit more into how this might translate um out over over the longer term i I think you've you've touched on it quite well there it's less about those individual matchups and more talking about how they perform maybe against a certain subset or against a certain style and then we can we can up our confidence but I don't think it makes sense to to chuck them out altogether. It's just about including m- more information that's still relevant. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you say, yeah, you talk about it's not just a marginal gain anymore. It's um, you know, it, it can be it can be game winning. And um, what um, without obviously going into too many of the specifics, is there anything? you look at apart from you know there's there's batter bowler type matchups um obviously t20 is quite situational so is there anything yeah. else teams look to look to exploit in those batter bowler matchups yeah um so having well, it's all about team building this it's all goes back to recruitment and team building so for example <coughs> some, some bowlers will only bowl in certain phases of matches so uh Give me some examples. So many leg spinners don't bowl in the power play and rarely bowl at the death. So power play is over one to six in T20 match. Death, I call it 17 to 20. 
uh, over 17 to 20 is the last four. Some people say 16 to 20 for the last five, but I, I'm very strong on the fact that it's, I think it's 17 to 20. There's not really a dictionary definition of it. But the reason why I say 17 to 20 is because then you've got two, In if you have good role clarity, you've got two bowlers, one bowling 17, 19, the other bowl 18 and 20, your, yeah. your go-to death bowlers. Um, and just, and, uh, just to clarify for anyone who isn't, yeah. Okay, with cricket power play, um, means there are there are fielding restrictions, so you can only have um two fielders out on the boundary during the power plays. Yeah, and uh, going on from that, a lot of spinners bowl sixteenth over, whereas they won't bowl seventeen to twenty. So that's another reason why I like um using seventeen to twenty as death overs a bracket. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, so for example, Matt Parkinson, who's kind of on the fringe of the the England team, is a leg spinner that I rate rate pretty highly. Um, he doesn't. He barely ever bowls in the power play, whereas uh, as a leg spinner, uh, whereas Max Waller, who's a Somerset, will bowl quite a bit in the power play. He often opens the bowling. Matt, Matt Parkinson's twin brother, Callum, is with us at Leicestershire. He's a slow left arm spinner, and he'll bowl multi phases. So multi phases, he'll bowl power play or middle primarily. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is is that when you're building a team, you've got to understand where you're going to get the, the phase output from for those matchups as well. So um, I look to try, I prefer, I prefer to, to focus on bowlers who have multi-phase output, positive expectation for multi-phase output. So in, if you can find a bowler who's got positive expectation from three-phase output, that's fantastic because then it just allows you so much with planning flexibility and, and, and to really target and dial down on those matchups. Whereas if a lot of the time people make mistakes on picking certain players who are good players, but they're only really good in one phase as a bowler. But the problem is you've got four over quota and you, you're pigeonholing yourself. So um, I'll give you some examples. So like last year in the IPL, I felt that Royal Challengers Bangalore had too many pace bowlers who are strong one phase operators. So the they'll often bowl two overs in either the power play or the death, primarily the death with their, with their group of players. They had a lot of good death bowlers, but those players didn't have great output in the power play or the middle over. So their, their role clarity death was fine. They'll bowl two overs at the death, but then where do you get their other two overs around? Yeah. Uh, and that's really difficult. So you're, you're taking a hit in other areas, which is unnecessary because there's actually players who went unsold who, who provide multi-phase output. So, it's all about planning. The matchups is all about team building and planning and finding players who complement each other. So, in t- if you're if you're in a draft or an auction, particularly in an auction, I think in the IPL when you have a 25 player squad, which is massive in terms of flexibility, if you don't have multiple leg, two leg spinners at least, at least one slow left armor and at least one off spinner, but the off spinner will almost certainly have to come out of your top six batters because they're, they're a good batter as well. If you don't have that in your squad, you probably failed in team build because then you can you can have really flexible strategy and, and team balance and flexibility from those multiple options. Mm-hmm. So you you might you might the off spinner might not bowl against some teams, but then against a team full of left-handers, they might bowl four overs. So it's you, you're allowing them options, and I think that having those those bowling options in the top six out of the top six batters is 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 quite a 
crucial bit of strategy for matchups. And, and if you notice the teams that I work with, that's kind of a common denominator. It's really, really interesting to hear that. And I, I guess it goes back to the name that I gave this whole podcast when I first started. It looks good on paper. Like sometimes the best players that you can pick aren't necessarily the ones that will gel the most. And I, I get infuriated a lot of the time when people say, oh, this is our, this is our best eleven. Because I think your best eleven can only be your best eleven for any specific game. You can't just pick the same team over and over and expect the same results. There's always going to be nuances with the opposition that you play and um, and other factors yeah. that are going to be factored into it that are going to mean you're going to have to make changes in selection. And people do people get mad when managers make um, changes to the teams um, on a game by game basis. But it's absolutely crucial to exploit those little edges that you can game depending on who the opposition are, are going to select. Do you think that's completely true in cricket as well? Yeah, completely. Like, no doubt about that. So I think I heard a phrase once, which was, I don't want to pick the 11 best players. I want to pick the best 11 for the match. And and, and that's, I couldn't agree more with that. So we've, in cricket, obviously, you've, you've got a very opposition-dependent strategy that you can exploit if you want to try and go down that road um i don't know about football planning but i would guess that cricket's probably you can structure up differently probably more in cricket against certain opposition than you can in football because there's also the extra variable of the venue as well so i don't know let's just look at two two venues as complete contrast okay if you look at trent bridge nottingham and nottingham now that that's a, what you would call a high par venue. So if you're batting first, your your target is going to be like 180 plus most of the time because in T20 I'm talking about because the boundaries aren't the biggest and knots have got a really good batting lineup. So you have to post a higher total batting first to get keep yourself in the game. Whereas if you go to Durham, a Chester Street the dynamics are completely different. Durham don't have such a, a strong batting group as knots, but the boundaries are huge as well. So against knots, you might pick a team of hitters because you can need to pepper them with boundaries because that's the only way you're going to beat them. Where against Durham, you might pick players who are better at rotating the strike because boundaries are much harder to hit. So you might just look to try and... yeah. Durham, you might look to hit like 12, 13% of boundaries, but you would really want to maximise your non-boundary strike rate. So like, say, say you hit 12, 13 boundaries and 120 balls, it's like 15, 16 boundaries and 120 balls, right? Mm-hmm. So off those other 105 odd balls, you would want to score like minimum of 80 of those balls. Yeah. But then you're, but then against knots, you wouldn't be worried about rotating the strike and so much. You'd be more looking at getting the ball over the boundary line it's a four or six because there's completely different dynamics of the venue and completely different dynamics of the opposition so you would want to change your strategy based on that and you saw that at the IPL as well uh, I don't know if you watch much of it but like Sharjah they played they played all the games in UAE last last year because of COVID and um, they played a lot of the matches at Sharjah now Sharjah is about as big as my back garden so so like the scores were ridiculously high but then if you if you at the other two venues it wasn't nearly as prevalent yeah. kind of thing and that suits different players like Avira Kohli for example he he is an unpopular point of view but it's 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 
you can't argue against it statistically. Out of all the batters who faced a minimum of 150 balls in the IPL last year, Coley had the lowest boundary percent by a mile. Okay, he, and his game is that's his game over a long sample size, a big sample size, long period of time. It's that's exactly it. He has a low boundary percentage, but his um, non-boundary strike rate, so his ability to rotate the strike and turn ones into twos, is like the best you'll you'll see. Okay, and so he takes he's a very low risk player. He 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 preserves his wicket arguably too much, but but he he will try and bat through an innings, and you, we saw that in the T um, twenties recently. Yeah, against England. Um, but against Sharjah, his style of play is arguably unsuited to that venue because you need to score like two hundred plus. I mean, two. I think two twenty-five. Odd got chased down in one match, uh, and if it, Coley is a master of getting your team to one sixty, his team to one sixty, but he's not the master of getting his team to two hundred twenty. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's what that's it. So if, he, if the other venues, he was a positive player, in my opinion. But at Sharjah, he, he could turn from being a positive player into potentially a liability. So it's very venue driven as well, and, and and understanding those venue venue dynamics, which is something that I do a lot of work on as well. And I do like an advanced scouting pack for the teams that I work for with all that type of yeah. information, and then both data wise and like bullet points and stuff with potential strategies that we can we can adapt to that venue and stuff. I think that's critical in cricket. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. Obviously, it's kind of sacrilege saying stuff like that about Virat Kohli but I think I think you're absolutely right in that sometimes even the very best players are just not the ones that are suited to that situation and like you say it's about understanding those little nuances it's something that I'm trying to incorporate into some of our predictive modeling is things like um, crowd sizes so I think the different players respond well to venues with different uh, size capacities um, you know, bigger or, or smaller crowd sizes and how that, that scales up with player talent. And also just things like measuring expectations. Like if you've got a, a really good goal scorer and he, he's playing against, he's playing, sorry, in a team where there's four or five other goal scorers. I wrote an article on this recently. You can't expect him to scale the output from when he, if he's coming from a team where he was the, the sole goal scorer to one where he's now one of many points of attack because he, he's just not going to have as, as much time on the ball to create yeah. those goals. And I, I think leveling those expectations, understanding how a player fits within your own team and also how they fit against the opposition that you're playing, I still think has a, a long way to go in football and, and hopefully the wheels start to turn slowly on that and we can see more matchup-based um, team selections in the future. Um so I think the next the next topic to discuss is something that's fascinated me ever since I, I started watching American sports maybe five, six years ago is um, the 100 draft. Um, obviously, for anyone who, who doesn't know, the 100 was a, a new format that the ECB came up with. And it's, it is what it says on the tin. It, it's a 100-ball competition. It's never been played before. I guess my first question would be, what was planning for that like knowing you were going into a format of cricket that's not been played yet? Yeah, fun, real challenge. I loved it. Um, yeah. So, so obviously, 100 balls isn't that much different to 120, which you face in, in T20. Fortunately, um, there's also a T10 competition played in, in the UAE every, every year as well. 
and so 100 isn't quite between 120 balls for T20 and 60 balls for T10, but it's kind of somewhere along that scale. Yeah. So so I I kind of prepared a little bit on on looking at the differences between those two formats and similarities between those two formats on, on what drove success and yeah that was quite useful. But then there's going to be a lot of different scenarios that that are quite difficult to account for in advance as well. So for example, bowlers can bowl back to back overs in in the hundred, which has never been done before in T twenty cricket. So yeah, that's going to be something that we're probably going to have to learn about about on you know a bit on the fly really to start yeah. with because there's no historical evidence that we can go look at for to see how teams have dealt with those situations before. I've got some ideas on how how I think would be a good way to go about that scenario, but they're just ideas rather than concrete strategies and you know proven strategies if you like. Um, but I mean, I think you'd say that most teams in the draft prepared for it as if it was a T20 comp. I don't, with with a kind of a leaning towards picking more aggressive batters uh, slightly. So you saw in the original draft, like a few of the more sort of accumulators, if you like, were picked up at lower price brackets than perhaps people predicted would that they would go for. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that maybe surprised a few people, but I actually think that was quite logical too. That's just market forces, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there's going to be an absolute ton of similarities between the 100 and T20, but super excited with the new format. I think it's going to be a massive success as well because there's quite a few reasons why things can be huge. And the first, the first reason is, is that at the moment we've got 18 counties in English cricket. And most of the matches that they play are all played at the same time, right? So compared to football, in the old days, you might have had like all, all 10 teams in the Premier League playing at three o'clock on a Saturday yeah. afternoon. Um, in cricket, that's often the case. Like, it might be sort of five, six, seven, eight matches all played at the same time. You can't watch all those matches at the same time, obviously, on TV because it's physically impossible to do yeah. that. And so one match out of them, eight or so, might be televised. Well... That's no good if you're looking to get exposure as a player, is it? Because you can't. You, there'll be some some players might only be on TV once or twice in the entire tournament. Yeah, and a lot of these overseas franchise teams, they they have kind of a view a mentality where if it's if it's on TV, it didn't happen. If it's not on TV, it didn't happen. Yeah, and someone someone said to me the other day, a player said to me the other day, "Oh, well, your TV runs can't double." And and like, it does. That's that's so true. If you get like, if you score a hundred or an eighty on TV, or take five wickets or something on TV, I guarantee you that you'll be very very likely to get like a, a contract in a draft or something. Ha- like that. Happens in football as well. World, World Cup and European Championship yeah. goals just blow transfer values completely out of the water. Yeah, yeah. I can remember. Was it Paborski at Man United? Harold Paborski and Jordi yeah. Cruyff in uh, yeah. year ninety six. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's that's super prevalent in cricket as well. And um, the other thing is as well is that at the moment with eighteen teams, there's like 198 players on the pitch at any one time. Yeah. Whereas the hundred is 88 players, eight teams or eight teams or eleven. So it, there's a big dilution of quality with an 18 county format, whereas now with 
to 100 with fewer teams is more of a concentrated area of talent. Three overseas players as well who are ex- extremely high quality across all the teams. So the, the standard of cricket is going to be very, very, very high. And I would say would in advance I would predict it will be of a similar standard to the IPL which is the best T20 league in the world pretty much everyone would say that Um, so uh, I think it's going to be a massive success and the fact that every game is being televised also a lot of it is going to be on free to air TV as well is is going to be huge for the profile we've also seen that the the, the women's competition is is being played alongside it as well with often men's and women's double headers so I think that's going to be great for the growth of the the women's game as mm-hmm. well. So, so this is so many positives around the tournament. It's it's the tournaments really annoyed traditionalists, but so did T Twenty when it came came along, and now everyone watches it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you made a really good point on the um, the dilution of talent there. That's one of the reasons I'm really into the NBA is because yeah. you've got you've got thirty teams and there's five spots on each team. And it just creates the most um, saturated talent pool. And you really see the very best playing uh, against the very best. And like you say, it really does make for such um, a more exciting sport at the end of the day. Um, yeah. So going going into that that draft, you've got such this, this wide player pool to pick from, I guess. And like yeah. I said before, there's no real, there's no real parallel in football in terms of the format. But if you're a Premier League football club, you literally have your pick of pretty much any footballer in the world to sign on on 90% of them. Mm-hmm. And it's about whittling down that player pool. So I guess, how much of a challenge did you find that? And did you feel you, you had an edge going into that on some of the other franchises perhaps? Yeah. Um, so this is where I feel like being data driven is of a real benefit because while they didn't circulate the draft list until quite late in the day in terms of not not far off the draft date. I, I knew that which players were going to be involved. It's obvious which players were going to be yeah. in the next forward. So you could do all the due diligence on the players from data side of things in advance. So so yeah, obviously we did some really thorough planning and had a lot of meetings about about the strategies that we were looking to try and try and develop through the squad and the squad dynamics that we wanted. And and data featured pretty heavily in that. Um, uh both to kind of prove and disprove theories and stuff like that so so um it i couldn't have done that without the data the data side of it was huge in terms of at least creating some form of short list of players who who we would be interested in come draft day so i'm trying to think how many players there were i, I bought a guess ballpark there would have been about 300 domestic players and a lot of overseas players who would put put their name in, and that's that's actually uh, I think the IPL has about a thousand players that are whittled down to about three hundred in advance of the auction. Yeah. But the thing is, with a lot of them, you can just draw a line through them straight away. Like some players that you know that like if they're in the list, but they've probably got about as much chance of being picked up as me and you. Yeah. So so that that helps too. Um, but yeah, the, having the data of every player and understanding what type of player you're looking for enables you to to do some a lot of f- data filters and and almost like a, a bit of a depth chart kind of thing to to work out which players offer the most value in certain areas. 
so having having my own database again was something that was was super useful um with the draft as well it was it was quite a complicated process because i don't know if, if you're familiar with this or your listeners will be familiar with this but we used a snake draft which is quite i think quite uh prevalent in in fantasy sports in in america yeah we so we do our we do a draft every every monday on our podcast with different criteria and we we use a snake draft on that yeah well you probably know then that if you're first or last, that is quite a disadvantage. I think being first is probably the biggest disadvantage. I, I'm, when we do it, whoever gets first normally actually complains because they're just okay. waiting for ages once they've had that first pick. Well, um, I we were last. Yeah. I that was a big disadvantage over the first. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. And I felt that that, that that was quite a considerable disadvantage over the draft. So if considering we were last I, I was really really pleased with the squad that that we picked and then they reversed the order this year for the for the, the mini draft so we were first and mm-hmm. it, because it was a mini draft we, it was a lot easier being first let me tell you um we, we got we got what we got pretty much what we wanted so so yeah it was the dynamics of the draft are you have to take that into account. And I knew that I, I'd done some research on snake drafts in advance of, of the draft of, for the hundred. And um, it still took me by surprise how kind of biased that format was towards teams that were sort of in the middle of the snake, if you like. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I knew it wouldn't, it would favor them, but I didn't quite know how much it would favor them. Yeah. I mean, we've, we, we have experimented with kind of snake drafts and also the more um, NFL NBA type drafts where you'll go kind of one through six and then two will start the second round, the third person will start and you'll loop around like that. And it's been interesting to see how the, the dynamics of those different draft types changed. I mean, in the, in the first round, obviously, like you said, you were last We Did you kind of know who would have gone from the 17s before and you were banking on your first two picks and you knew who was probably going to fall to you by then, or was it still mm. a bit of a stab in the dark? No, no, I think that, that we probably knew at least half of the players who would be likely to go before us. Because you know that like it's not it's not a secret that players like Rashid Khan. Uh, yeah, I think everyone knew he was probably yeah. gonna go first or second. Yeah. So so you know that they're gonna get picked up straight away. So I mean i think going last, being an eighth team, if someone like Rashid Khan or Andre Russell fell to you, you would like fall off your chair in shock. Yeah. yeah like you, you wouldn't expect that at all so yeah that, that's one of the advantages to going first to some extent i suppose or towards the top yeah definitely and then like you say you, you reversed the order for the mini draft this year um you said you've got the the data-driven process in place i i did laugh actually a couple of times when i watched the the original one because you had the podiums and you had the coach uh, and the assistant and some of them had an analyst and when they were discussing the picks you'd see the two coaches um heads together picking a player and you just kind of see the analyst sat to the side and <laughs> not not really involved in the decision yeah. making I, I don't know if that was just for show or, or how prevalent that was but watching through it, and obviously you had the the pricing bands as well and players had to had to nominate themselves at, uh, so, at the minimum yeah. pricing band yeah um, did that kind of throw a spanner into the works at any stage? Okay, so from our perspective, so 
we weren't one of those teams. We were the, the coach. We only had one coach in our pod. So Andrew McDonald, who's our head coach, couldn't make it over from Australia. So um, so he was on like Zoom. And yeah. um, we had Dan Vittori, who's our assistant coach in our pod. And we also had Craig, who's our, our general manager as well. Yeah. So, so we had a different approach in terms of the people in the pod to most other other teams. who Some of them didn't even have an analyst, but you're right, some, some of them... I, I, yeah, I was thinking more the, the yeah. teams on the left-hand side. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that was, particularly. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm pretty sure a couple of them, or one at least, didn't have an analyst in their pod as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was that was, that was was interesting. And, yeah, so what was the second point part of that? Mine's gone. Uh, was the, um, did the reserve players set in their um, reserve prices oh, yeah. to a spanner of the works at any stage? Um, yeah, not to us, but I think to other teams, maybe. Um I think that some players had got bad advice from their agents and they, they put their reserve at, like, say, 50 or 60K. And that dramatically impacted on, on their demand because yeah. um, you're forcing a team's hand, obviously, at that point because, you know, you get down to the 60K bracket and you're saying, well, if you don't pick me up now... I'm not getting a contract and the team might have like FOMO or they might, or the player might not get a contract. And that actually happened on quite a few, yeah, yeah. Quite a few players. Now those players ended up getting picked up in the redraft, but if the tournament hadn't have been postponed due to COVID, they would have missed out on the tournament of the first year and they missed out, would have missed out on all the exposure that that tournament would have bought, not just domestically, but also overseas as well. Yeah. I'm sure the tournament would have been broadcasted. India and Australia and the major cricketing nations so um, there would have been huge interest in the tournament so I think any player that put themselves in domestic players I'm talking about who put themselves in at any reserve price apart from no reserve was getting bad advice from their agent to be pretty honest with you yeah I agree because like you say you, you saw some kind of mid to high profile names just not getting picked up and but then you saw someone uh, you know t20 veteran like luke right i think went in the last the last pick yeah, maybe pick, yeah. yeah um which is really interesting um you know that's been a really good insight i think into the draft i really wish there was more of a something like a drafting process in football i don't think it worked because of how the league pyramid works yeah i watched the major league soccer draft in america um last year but It'd be interesting to see how something like that would work in English football. Yeah, I, I do as well, because I just think there'd be such a, a disconnect between some of the switched on clubs and let's say those who are, are less so. Um, I'd just like to to finish with a question we got in um, from one of the people on Twitter. I put out a thing for questions um, and Ali cast about fielding. Um, and he said, yeah. there's a lot more in football about looking at average positions and, and formations and structures. And he said, there's, there's not a lot of that in cricket. Um, obviously on, on Sky, you get the occasional uh, graphic with the little dots representing where yeah. the field is. And sometimes you'll, you'll see them moving. Is that a big part of any of your analysis or is, is fielding a forgotten afterthought sometimes in cricket, do you think? Yeah. Um, I've, I'm a bit contrasted in terms of my, my point of view on this. So, I don't look at fielding, but that's because I don't have the technology to yeah. to immerse myself in that side of things, and my plate's full with other things anyway. But, but, but um, 
I think that it's probably the next area which we'll, we'll see kind of more innovation with. But I'm unconvinced about how much value that will have in terms of anything being anything more than a very marginal gain. Mm-hmm. So I know that like some of the stats companies who, who use with Sky and stuff, they sometimes put um, tables on the screen with like the best fielding performances uh, in a tournament or the average runs saved per fielder in a tournament. And in T20, it's extremely rare to find a player saving more than one run in over 120 balls. Yeah. Uh, I think only based on, I read an article in newspaper uh, online last week, and I think there's only about five or six players who saved an average of over a, a run run uh, in a match in T20. Uh, and from that, you can probably infer that the, the worst field is probably leak, maybe one, two runs max um, as a negative as well. Yeah. So that doesn't really make fielding anything more than a line call in terms of selection. Um, certainly, I think that's another area where I think a lot of traditionists would be quite surprised at the limited impact of, of players in the field in T20. And some... You, you will get coaches who will say, oh, well, yeah, but he's a good fielder. Well, he, having a good fielder is only useful if they're an above-average player in their primary skill set. Really. Yeah, I guess it's more of a, a nice thing to have on, exactly. on the side rather than that being the primary reason why yeah. they're, they're well, getting selected. Like, call, like, if you've got two players of similar batting ability, for example, one's a better fielder, you go with a better fielder. It's, it, but it's certainly not something that I would want to factor in too much in my, my planning unless someone was like overwhelmingly bad at, at fielding mm-hmm. you, know, you know like they're overweight and they can't move properly in the field they've got you know they, they're not they're not a good asset in the field if you like that that, that might be one example but I wouldn't never Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, you just froze there a little bit. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so I wouldn't really ever factor that side of things in as much. I think it's an overrated area yeah. traditions and coaches and stuff. I, th- I think that what you've said there just falls perfectly in line with what um, happened in Moneyball, in, in baseball, and how it's progressed. Fielding has advanced in that, but in money, he would get rid of he would sign, sorry, uh, Billy Bean would sign below average fielders because they were really good hitters and he saw that the the gains that you were getting hitting far outweighed the the net loss that you were getting in the field. And it was just exactly. more of a nice bonus. And uh, while there isn't kind of a, a direct parallel in football that I, I can think of, um, people sometimes get concerned about, oh, uh, is, a de- is a defender going to score enough goals for us or is a striker going to defend? And I think people need to worry more about who's the better player in the primary skill set and then if it's neck and neck then you can look towards more of a secondary skill set as, as more of a tiebreaker yeah um, be more, yeah and there's that's so yeah, it's a very similar comparison between cricket with fielding and, and you know, baseball that we have yeah. read about in moneyball already yeah okay um dan this has been a really interesting episode for me uh, to listen to what you've got to say i, I hope everyone who's listened has found it the same um really interesting to hear about parallels from other sports 
hopefully a, a few of you have listened are interested in cricket and some of the cricket listeners might be interested in football as well. Um, so thank you for your time. If anyone wants to um, read some of Dan's older work, I'll put a, a link to the Sports Analytics Advantage website down below. Um, and you can follow Dan on Twitter. Um, I think it's at SA Advantage on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so Dan, again, thank you for your time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.